Okay, brothers, we're opening up Genesis 3. We're going to be uh, tracing out some of the, um, yeah, just looking at the trajectory of some of the themes we uh, saw in Genesis 3 on our first walkthrough. And um, if you're like me, uh, you realize, you know, just even as Jason and, and Tom are teaching that one of the big challenges of tracing out trajectories is that it calls for breadth. Like we have to get, it stretches us so much because we have to be able to be acquainted with Scripture and the context of Scripture throughout the whole of Scripture. And it gets, it's, it stretches all of us. And uh, so that's the challenge before us. So we need the Lord's help. We are dust. And, uh, um, but we have a big God of Genesis 1. So let's pray to him and ask him for help. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for the privilege of being able to open your word again. Thank you that you have put your spirit within us so that we can understand these things that are spiritually discerned. What a gift that we have all that we need to be able to rightly understand your word. And uh, God, I pray that you would, by your spirit, illumine our minds, Lord, to uh, open our minds and illumine your words so that we can grasp more of your son. That's our prayer, Lord. Uh, lift him up in our midst and help us to trace out these trajectories and to praise you and your son who came to crush the head of our ancient foe. In his name we pray, amen. So guys, um, just to recap uh, Genesis 3, what we've seen there, the beginning we, we hear the kind of dark sounds, the creepy music come on as the serpent comes into the, garpe- the garden, and, uh, and it's, it's a stark contrast from what we've been hearing up to that point. Genesis 1, we meet this big God, and we get a taste of who we are meant to be as those who um, are infused with dignity as being image bearers of God, set apart from the rest of creation, that we are made in his own image and likeness, commissioned to fill the whole earth with his glory. And then we get to chapter 2 where we can just see uh, just the beauty of a very intact creation. Um, Man and woman, naked, unashamed, enjoying the presence of God. And then we get to Genesis 3 and the serpent, the serpent, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He comes in and everything changes from that point on. We see the deception, this great deception that has set off a chain reaction of deception that we see even to our day. Then we saw the consequences of sin that are great and they are weighty and they are crushing because they lead to judgment ultimately. And we see curse come into this world, and um, as the sentence is handed down, we learned that Adam was, he heard something in that sentence handed down that gave him hope, hope that was going to allow him to leave the garden and allow us to leave the darkest chapter of the Bible with hope, looking for something great. God's going to do something, and um, that hope and all of our hope is bound up in that promise in chapter 3, verse 15. 
he, the singular male offspring of the woman, he will bruise your head. All of our hopes in that. That Satan has to be dealt with, that ancient serpent. And so that promise in Genesis 3.15, really what we want to do is we want to say, okay, how is that going to come to fruition in the scriptures? In the second Adam, we're going to see that the second Adam had to come and he had to provide the grounds of our faith. He had to give content to that promise. Adam was clinging to it, and anybody throughout history who had ears to hear was clinging to this promise with the same sentence hanging over our heads. And so we have to say, how is God going to make good on this? And we know it's going to come through the singular male offspring of the one that's going to come ultimately through the second Adam who has to provide grounds for that faith we see in verse 20. And so... How is he going to do it? Here's kind of the, the outline of where I'd like to go. We'll see how, how the time uh, works out. But we're going to see that the second Adam had to come and he had to resist temptation. He had to succeed where the first Adam failed. Then we're going to see that the second Adam had to get rid of the serpent himself. He did that by putting him to shame, by crushing his head, and by bearing our curse. And then we're going to see that the second Adam had to sufficiently clothe us. And the second Adam had to unlock the garden again. So that we could get back in and eat of the tree of life. So that we could live forever. So that's kind of, that's kind of the flow. And so just looking at these main themes in Genesis 3. And trying to trace out the trajectory and say, how does God make good on that promise? through the singular male offspring of the woman. And as we do, may, may God just show us the glory of his son with texture. Let's look first at um, the temptation. So we see our first parents in Genesis 3. Uh, starting in verse 1, we'll start with right away verse 1, reading the temptation. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And so we see the first, this was a test, the first test that humanity was really going to face. And, and we see um, that our first parents failed the test, and the first Adam was completely passive in the moment where he should have been absolutely active in dealing 
swiftly, decisively, seriously with the serpent. And so what I want to do is I just want to go directly to Matthew chapter 4 and let's look together at how the second Adam faces the same test. So Matthew chapter 4, I'm sure everybody here is familiar with it, but let's take some time to linger there because this is significant. I'm starting with this because if he doesn't pass this test, everything goes to naught. If he doesn't win this victory, we have no victory, right? So, so much is at stake right here. So let's let that weigh on us as we consider um, how catastrophic the failure was in the garden. And let's consider how great this victory is in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. Let's walk through it. Verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Wilderness is significant here, as we're going to see as he quotes Old Testament passages. He's led up by the Spirit. Is this something the Spirit would do? He's led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Love that. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's a fitting place to start in dealing with temptation from the ancient serpent, isn't it? Where's he quoting from? Anybody know? Deuteronomy 8. Jason, you can't answer on any of these Deuteronomy ones. (laughs) Deuteronomy chapter 8. So can we keep our finger in Matthew 4? And let's go back to Deuteronomy 8, looking at verse, verses 1 through 3. Okay, Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 through Three. Brother Greg, will you read that for us? Yeah. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply, and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these forty years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Mm. Thanks, brother. So, there in the wilderness, 40 years, on the brink of the promised land, he's saying that, that they were tested to see what was in their hearts. And there was one main lesson that he wanted them to learn. And what was that? Anybody? Dependence on God. And specifically on his word, right? 
that you may know that you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Every word that falls from the mouth of God. And so when Satan tempts him in his moment of, of hunger and weariness, command these stones to turn into loaves. That would be very convenient. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And just thinking about the context of Genesis 1 through 3, right? God spoke. Tom brought out in chapter 2, the most precious thing there was the word of God. It was the thing they should have clung to more than anything else. And the very thing that they stopped clinging to in Genesis 3 was that word. Was the word. They should have been living on it. That should have been their central focus. That should have been everything to them. And so now we have, but it wasn't, right? They were deceived. They loosened their grip and they ended up dropping, fumbling the word of God. But Jesus, we see the second Adam, knows as the God-man that man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that falls from the mouth of God. He's passing the test. He's refusing to let go of the word of God and maybe you recall John 4.34 when his disciples come to him, very concerned because he hasn't eaten anything. And do you remember what he said to them? I love that. I have food you don't even know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. I mean, just completely, so I mean, just living that out, moment by moment. My food is to do the Father's will. If I have that, I am satisfied. If I have that, I'm flourishing. If I have that, I have everything that I need. So the Son of Man is showing us that man cannot live by bread alone. And then the devil continues. Verse 5, Then the devil took him to a holy city, to the holy city, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. It's interesting what he's doing here, right? Because Jesus just got done saying, you know, um, God will, God's, God's word is enough for me. I trust, I trust God's word. And so he's saying, oh, you do. Here, let's test that. Let's go up on the pinnacle of the temple and throw yourself down. If you trust God so much, surely he'll command his angels concerning you and they'll bear you up, right? You won't smash against the ground. And uh, where's he quoting from there? Where, where's, where's Satan quoting from there? Psalm 91, which is a really interesting psalm to go to, right? Satan knows the Bible, apparently, because if you're looking for a place of refuge, protection, strength, Psalm 91 is a great text to go to, isn't it? So let's go to that one. And he doesn't, I don't think he quite realizes how well Jesus knows his Bible, but let's look at Psalm 91, which is glorious here, especially with its ties to the garden. So Psalm 91, let's start at verse 9. Matt, would you read that for us, brother? Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. 
On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot, because he holds fast to me in love. I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. Let's stop there. Thanks, brother. So notice, all right, the devil's quoting. So uh, verse 11, he will command his angels concerning you, right? Lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus is like, I like to read my Bible in context. Yep, I trust God. The Lord will catch me. But I also know that if I, if I don't do it his way, um, I won't be able to trample you under my feet. In other words, Satan, why didn't you quote verse 13? You will tread, the one who finds refuge in God will tread on the lion and the adder. In other words, Jesus resisting his temptation, the very, the very, this very point of testing right here, him passing this test is going to allow him to fulfill not just God being his refuge, strength, holding him up, bearing him up, but he will actually be able to trample Satan under his feet. And notice uh, that language there too about trampling uh, underfoot. This language it starts to loosen a little bit through Scripture, like that crushing the head, that poetic language there. It starts to broaden, I noticed, as we kind of go through the trajectory of the Bible. It's not just that he crushes his head, but the fact is he's, just, he's under his feet. All of his enemies are there. It gets broader as we go. But it's interesting um, after Jesus resists him thoroughly, um, it says this in verse 11. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So in other words, yep, God will keep me, but I know what you're trying to do. And I plan to crush your head, and so I'm going to trust God, resist what you're doing right now, and right, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added. Yep, there's, there's angels there too in God's time. Love this. So he resists him. Let's go verse 7. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Where's that from? Isaiah 7.12. What is it? Isaiah 7.12. Ooh. Is it? Deuteronomy 6 verse... Deuteronomy 6, 16. Let's look at it real quick. All right. Other Matt, will you read that? Um, do not test the Lord your God as you did at Massa. Yeah, so Massa. Let's go to Exodus Chapter 17. Jason, is that right? Yeah. Exodus 17. Let's figure out what happened at Massa. Exodus 17. Verses 2 through 7. Can I get someone to read that? 
Yeah. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why contest the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Hmm. Okay, thank you. So that's what happened at Massa. There's they're thirsting, they're, they're hungry, they're grumbling against the Lord. That was a moment for the, for the children in the wilderness to say, God will supply. God will take care of me. I can trust his word. He won't let us starve and die in here. He has better plans for us. He's going to bring us into the promised land. They had an opportunity to trust God. Instead, they tested God by their unbelief, Right? And so Jesus, quoting this, right? So Satan was tempting him to say, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple, right? Surely God will catch you if you really trust him. And he's saying, don't put the Lord your God to the test, right? Like the children of Israel did. And Jesus is saying, I'm different. I'm the second Adam. I'm not going to put the Lord, my God, to the test. Instead, I'm going to trust him completely. I'm going to bank on his word completely. Then he picks up in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, it's interesting here is really, I think it's, it's, it's this, we see this progression throughout it. This is really what it's about, right? This is what it's been about the whole time. It's a worship issue, right? So Satan's finally getting exasperated here, he's going to just tip his hand and say, all right, going for broke. I'll give you all of this if you will worship me. And, and, uh, and uh, Jesus is saying, okay, you finally showed your hand. And so Jesus says, verse 10, Be gone, Satan. It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And the devil left him. And behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. In other words, he resisted where the first Adam failed. And everything really hinges on Jesus' ability to find victory where we failed, where Satan, or where the first Adam failed. And I just want to trace out just a little bit further before we go on to the next point, just the implications of Jesus' victory here and what this means for us as New Covenant believers. So let's go to Hebrews. Just briefly, just want to read two texts. Starting in Hebrews 2. Verse 
So Hebrews 2, let's read 14 to 18. Can I get one guy to read Hebrews 2, 14 to 18, and somebody to read Hebrews 4, 14 to 16? 2nd Adam resisted temptation so that we can resist temptation. The 2nd Adam held the line so that we can hold the line. He resisted and so that he can also sympathize with us. Let's read the second one. Who's got that? Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, Son of God. Let us hold fast in our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hmm. Since he resisted, he can serve as a high priest who can sympathize with our every weakness. He was tested, he was tempted in every way, love this phrase, yet without sin. He passed the test that the first Adam failed. And because of that, we can draw near to him with great confidence and find mercy and grace and much help in the time of need. So again, just pointing out this fact that Jesus came and it's significant that this temptation in Matthew um, four starts out at the beginning of the gospel. Like this had to happen. He had to win this victory for anything else to come. If he loses here, the whole thing is not. If he loses there, God's promise falls to the ground unfulfilled. If he loses there, Adam's hope in the garden was futile. Go ahead, brother. Oh, I, I'm just thinking something that I've seen in myself before is to make Jesus kind of a machine. So even as temptation is a, like you can have theoretical conversations of, well, it actually wasn't possible for him to fall or whatever. And the text says he suffered, since he's self, he suffered, like to make him less fully human than he really was. And almost we get a free pass for behaving differently because, well, Christ was this perfect machine who, Mm. walked out this versus no mm. it cost dearly mm. to do what he did mm. Mm. and I, I think you the flavor of the psalms yeah. is evidence of that mm. amen brother thanks for sharing that so Jesus the second Adam resisted he resisted he held the line and now he can actually deal with the serpent and that that's that's the other thing he must he must find victory in the midst of temptation, and he must deal with the serpent. And so we'll see, let's think about that together. How does he deal with the serpent? 
say three ways, by putting him to shame, by crushing his head, by bearing the curse. So let's start with by putting him to shame. Let's go back and remind ourselves quickly from Genesis 3, verse 14. This is significant. Verse 14, it says this, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, because you have deceived, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and eat and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And so there's this, <laughs> there's this word of curse, and these are not idle words. Like, you will go on your stomach. You will lick the dust. You will live in shame. You will be shamed all the days of your life. And we're going to see this is actually a shame that comes in increasing measure. And so let's, let's look at some texts together starting with Isaiah 49. Israel's going to be restored. There's renewed hope, and this is a description of their restoration. And uh, we're going to pick up in verse 23. Can I get a brother to read verse 23? Thus says the Lord God... Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples. And they shall bring your sons to their bosom and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Is that the text you want? Do the next verse too, please. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, those who wait for me. So we're going to see this theme as it develops. It's not just the serpent that's going to be in the dust, licking the dust, but it's also his offspring, the enemies of um, the offspring of the woman, the enemies of the singular male offspring. They're going to lick the dust. And notice it's... um, those who wait for the Lord that won't be put to shame. So there's just kind of this sense, this waiting, this longing, and it's this picture of trust while God lays his enemies low. So just notice it broadening here. The, the, the serpent's going to be put to shame, and those who side with him will be put to shame. So it's broadening as we go through. Let's look also at um, Micah 7. I'm going to read this because it's going to be, I'm not going to cover every text, but let's start um, in verse 7. Again, this sense of waiting, longing, looking to the Lord. 7-7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light and I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame 
will cover her who said to me, Where is your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. Look at verse 16. The nation shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. So they're going to be the enemies are going to be put in the dust just like the serpent, right? And now look what else has ended up trampled underfoot. Start in verse 19. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. There's this longing, there's this hoping, there's this this ever-clarifying picture of enemies of God, serpent and his offspring included in the dust, put to shame. Now let's go to Psalm 72, 9. One more stop before we get to the New Testament. Psalm 72, verse 9. Whoever gets there, would you read that? 72.9. May desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. Okay, this is again, this picture of the enemies of God. Going to lick the dust. That's the theme that we see building up here. So against the serpent and his offspring, licking the dust. Now let's get to Colossians chapter 2, verses 3 through 15. Where does the serpent meet his ultimate shame. Colossians 2. Colossians 2, and I'd I'd like us to read verses 13 through 15. Will someone read Colossians 2 verses 13 to 15 like you have your foot on the neck of the snake? (laughs) And you, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. On your belly you shall go, licking the dust all the days of your life. You and your offspring will be in the dust. You will be brought low all the days of your life. And he didn't know what he had coming on the cross. He thought he had the victory, and the whole thing got flipped on his head. And in that moment, he was stripped, which was, there's some irony here, because um, in order to put the serpent to ultimate shame, Jesus had to be, he had to endure shame on the cross. That's how the scriptures talked about it. It's praying Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2 this morning, right? Looking to Jesus, who for the joy set before us, before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame. He had to endure it all the way through, and he despised it. But that picture, I mean, Jesus is stripped completely bare on the cross, a mockery before all, completely open to that shame. But he did that so that through bearing our shame, he could put our enemy to shame. Let's, so the second Adam had to rid, us of, rid the garden of the serpent by putting him to shame. Let's look at also how he had to crush the serpent. So 3.15, <clears throat> and then we're going to work our way forward. Jason, I'm going to want your help on these because there's some of these Old Testament texts that I feel like my knowledge is more thin on it, and I'm, I'm kind of testing my thoughts on it, so you can help me, please. <laughs> Um, let's, let's look at, Gen- someone just read Genesis 3, um, 15 for us again. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Okay. So I need three readers. Can I get three hands raised so that I can assign some text? Okay. One, two, three. Okay. Number one, uh, look up Isaiah 27.1. Second reader, will you look up 51.9? I think that was Steve. And then Job 26, 12 and 13. Matt. And other guys, feel free to bounce there as well as you can. I just want to save a little bit of time here. Isaiah 27.1. So, Jason, this is where I want to test my thoughts. I'm seeing this Leviathan picture as a type of Satan um, and, uh, you know, foreshadowing of the dragon we're going to meet in Revelation, yeah. for example. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. Uh, this is all part of the unit. In chapter 25, um, a text that's echoed right there in Revelation, death will be swallowed up. Mm. Death will be no more. Mm. And... It's, it's right in that same context. This is, I believe, the devil. Okay. So that picture of with a sword punishing the fleeing serpent. Leviathan. And he's getting bigger. So things are ratcheting up. Let's look also. Uh, Steve, you got the next one. Um, what did I give you, Steve? Yeah. Awake. Awake, put on strength the arm of the Lord. Awake, as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces, who pierced the dragon? So I'm running this Rahab language, and is it the same thing? Type? Yeah, all throughout Isaiah, Rahab is described as this dragon connected with um, the often connected with the Red Sea episode, mm. as if Pharaoh was this dragon. Mm. Um, you'll remember that after Genesis 3.15, the very first time that we see the serpent mentioned is in Exodus chapter 4, when the serpent um, is portrayed, it, it is uh, what the staff becomes 
um, Moses' staff, and it's supposed to be, this is not when he's in the presence of Pharaoh, this is supposed to be the sign to the people. And he throws his staff down and turns into a serpent, and God says, stretch out your hand and grab it. But he's afraid, he, he flees, just like Israel was afraid of Pharaoh. So the serpent is a representation of Pharaoh, and Moses is a representation of God being able to grab that serpent. And from that point forward, um, Pharaoh is considered an image of the serpent, just as Israel is called God's firstborn son, and Pharaoh wants to do away with them and kill them, just like the original serpent was wanting to do with Adam and Eve, kill them. And so Pharaoh becomes this picture of evil who is slain in the sea. Hmm. Okay. So Rahab, the dragon, cut in pieces, pierced. So the language is just broadening, but the idea is the same. Yeah. And uh, I, felt, I felt validated by talking about, remember I said what Adam should have done to the serpent? Like chopped him up into pieces and thrown him out of the garden? I'm like, oh, that seems pretty accurate here. <laughs> so, um, and then Job, chapter 26, 12, and 13. Uh, I have question. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, go ahead, brother. Um, I might have Jason answer it, but yeah, go ahead. Um, I guess my thought is we're talking about serpent, right? Mm -hmm. And then in, I think it's numbers where a serpent's put on, like when the serpent's come like the people. Yeah. And then a serpent's lifted up. We're going to come to that text. Can we wait? I, yeah. Perfect. Okay. Yeah, no, we're going we're gonna to come to that. So let's, let's wait. Actually, we're going to come to that next. So let's just finish this Job one and then go right there. Um, um, 12 and 13. Please, yeah. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. So I just want you to see that language again being used in multiple books. Just the picture of Rahab, the serpent. It's just kind of heightening these pictures of evil. And, uh, and they're being dealt with, being pierced. The fleeing serpent. Serpent's starting to run. Um, Tides are turning, and, uh, and so now let's go to Numbers, where we're going to see some more serpents, and this is really um, significant for launching us into even more clarity in the New Testament. So um, Numbers, chapter 21. All right, the people of Israel are in trouble again. So let's look at Numbers chapter 21. Let's actually start in verse 4 and go forward through um, verse 9. Can I get someone to read that? They set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on their way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe and forth us food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, Why have we have sinned? For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So, the, so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, 
Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Go ahead, brother. I got a question. Yeah, go ahead. I understand the serpents biting and all that. Yeah. But it almost seems like it puts the serpent up as an idol. Mm. And yet it's a healing for the people. Yeah. Yeah, it is really it is really strange at first read. Um I can is is that pretty much your same question? No, exact one? I I figure that's yeah, where you going so um I think the picture is, and Jason, you can help me, but I, th- I think the picture is here, and this is why it's so significant, and we're going to go to our next check, text, John 3.15, right before John 3.16, those two are to be read together, um, that what's being lifted up is a picture of a serpent, but I think it's a dead serpent. So in other words, like the serpent has been dealt with kind of picture. What do you think, Jason? That's, that's my sense. Tom and I were talking about this too. I wish he was in here. But the, the wildness of this text is that they, the serpent, up to this point in the Bible, is only a picture of what is against God. It's a picture of evil. In this instance, the serpents are their curse. And now they're needing to look in faith upon an elevated image of the curse, and it is their means of life. And the only, the, the way I, that it makes most sense to me is that yes, this serpent is a slain serpent who's been lifted up on a, a banner displaying, okay, um, look in faith upon this elevated picture of the curse. And recognize that I've defeated it. If you trust in me as the defeater of your curse, looking in faith, then you can be forgiven and healed. But if you refuse, no. Another thought there, if you confess your sins, when you look at that serpent, you're you're raising your eyes up to look upon your sins, which in a sense is owning that sin. And so I think that's another part of that picture that we are forced to acknowledge the truth of the curse or of our sins when we look up at that serpent instead of refusing that we've been in rebellion, refusing that we've ignored God. We have to look up and say, yeah, that's, that's mine right there. I think there's a lot to that. Steve, did you want to build on that point or no? Uh, yeah, kind of build on okay. this. Uh, I've always kind of wondered too, uh, how was the serpent put on the pole? Was it put horizontally? And that would shape, make the shape of a cross if it was placed horizontally on, on that pole. Hmm. I don't know, is it trajectory hmm. of, say, being hmm. dealt with by means of hmm. the cross? Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. On that point, Galen? Oh, well, a little bit off the side, but I hear in numerous. Uh, references in the text uh, and what we went back to yesterday that uh, I hear the people grumbling. I mean, that was a, that was a stench of death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was death all around them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that that's a good point, Galen, because it it seemed like they and this is connecting multiple comments now. 
it really does seem like God is giving them a very tangible picture of where they're really at spiritually. They don't seem to get it. And so sending the fiery serpents is helping them see, like literally getting bit by these fiery serpents is making, become a very uh, tangible object lesson to help them understand their spiritual state at the time. They're in sin. They've been bit by the same serpent that our first parents were deceived by. I think that's the connection. And, um, and so looking up, um, looking up at it is, I think, both a sense of an acknowledgement. I've been bit by the serpent. I've been deceived. I'm in sin. But also, it seems like, um, Tom, we're talking about the serpent lifted up. Do you take it as a dead serpent on a pole? <laughs> as, a, as a dead serpent on a pole versus a bronze serpent. Yeah. Like or a bronze oh, servant that looks dead. dead yeah. Uh, I have always read it that way. Mm. That solves it, doesn't it, guys? <laughs> 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 I have read it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, one, the looking up part. Yeah. And the faith part. Yeah. And I'm not sure I would look up if there were fiery serpents at my feet. So hmm. there's definitely a sense of there has to be a faith in doing what God said to do. Hmm. Hmm. Look up. To, because of those scriptures down there, hmm. I wonder what they're doing. <laughs> That's practical. <laughs> yeah. Greg, did you have something? I was wondering what about it made the Israelites come to worship it so that Hezekiah had to destroy it later on. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it almost feels like we have to read between the lines some, which is always, you don't feel like you're on a safer ground. But the very fact that, like, look upon this serpent and live. And they, some did, and they did live. So, I mean, that by itself would make me think, oh, remembering back to that, the serpent gave us life, right? And so, but let's go to John um, John 3. Yeah. If they had, like, if they had lost the law, mm. and you can imagine legends mm. in their mind getting passed on, mm. that this thing could take on a mythic proportion of what saved us in the wilderness. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. So it's not like they have the law left, even if they have the the telling of the law mm. in their ver- in the unfaithful version. Yeah. It could take on any measure of mm. power. Mm. And with the golden calf incident, it doesn't take very long for one of those myths to <laughs> generate either. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, but I think when we look at the New Testament witness and how John is using it clearly, mm-hmm. the picture becomes really clear. And I think it's really helpful when we read it. Um, you know, read John 3.16 in light of this text. It seems to make sense of the text and help us to see the ultimate reality of what we're getting at here. So let's read uh, John 3. We'll maybe pick it up at verse 13. 13 through 16. Will someone read that for us? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. How far you want to go? That's good. So, clearly, we can say, however that that serpent was formed, it was a type of Christ. We're meant to, it's a foreshadowing of the cross that would bring life through faith, right? And so that's why I think the sense is like it would be a slain serpent. I mean, it's, it's hard because the text doesn't explicitly say, but it seems like it would be. You can just picture the, this is, I mean, that Genesis 3.15 promise and saying, okay, um, the serpent has to be dealt with. He has to be crushed. And this picture of him slain and the Son of God um, slain to make that happen um, all of a sudden becomes clear. Like we're putting trust in Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of that promise, the singular offspring of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. That's what we're putting our faith in. That was the same hope that Adam left the garden with. But here, John 3.16 makes it plain that that's what we're trusting in. Any comments or questions on that? Well, well, the serpent seems to be the exact opposite of the son. And yet now the son is being compared to, the, to him. How is it that the cross event lets the son be compared to the serpent? Hmm. Just TBS. <laughs> I just, yeah, I just think it's awesome that at the, that simultaneous, that moment, the crushing of the serpent was happened and the crushing of the sun was happened. The crushing of the serpent couldn't happen without the crushing of the sun. So we're meant to put our faith in the sun crushed for us, and that is the only way for the serpent to be crushed. Is that where you were thinking? Well, I, I would just add yeah. he became sin. Hmm. He became it. Hmm. Who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So we became the serpent. He he identified wholly with all of the serpent was because hmm, that's what that's good. done. That's good. That's what Adam did. He surrendered himself fully to yeah. him. And Jesus had to identify himself with all that heinousness, all hmm. that curse, all that sin. He bore that's our good. curse. That's good. So he fully identified, but it was the very means by which the serpent is crushed hmm. because it was substitution, not personal involvement. Hmm. But the, he took all of our sins, and in doing so, um, that, that's why the serpent on the pole, it, I mean, it's hmm. represented. This is the problem. All the serpents that were hmm. biting Israel were pictures of their sin. It was the result of their sin. Oh, you want to... Um, be rebellious like the serpent, I'll give you lots of serpents and see where that takes you. And, and, and it, so, so I, I just feel this power in Jesus being identified with the very one that he opposes, but that's what he did. He became our sin, which the serpent represented. He bore our curse, which the serpent represented, and yet through that defeated it. Amen. Amen. It's good. Let's. So we've been we've been watching um, as we looked at, especially Satan being put to shame. This picture of um, it's not just the serpent that's going to be put to shame, but his offspring that's going to be put to shame. And that picture is getting broader and clearer as we go along. Um, but it also works the other way, too. 
as the serpent is crushed, we become snake crushers. So let's look at this in Romans 16. So through, through faith in the one who's been lifted up, right? This word from Romans 16 can land on us with freshness. Um, Verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Your feet. What's that? Romans 16, verse 20. (laughs) Listen to that. The God of peace (laughs) will soon crush Satan under your feet your feet. You have peace with God through faith. We've already learned in Romans. And part of having peace with God means that your enemy has been dealt with. And so how powerful it is that we share in the triumph of Christ. That um, just as the serpent and his offspring will be put to shame, um, we um, will be, our shame will be covered and we will find our victory in Jesus's victory. And that's why we, why this word to us can say that Satan will be crushed and he will be under your feet. So let's look, um, let's look at, take a minute just to look in Revelation chapter 12 and then chapter 20, just to see the end of the serpent. Chapter 3, we had the beginning of the end with the curse. And we've been tracing it out, and now we're going to get to Revelation 12. I don't think we can take time to really look at it real close, but I want to actually read. I want to read. um, There's so much here, language from Genesis 3. um, But for our purposes, thinking about the... Just dealing with the serpent. Let's, let's maybe start at verse 7. Tom, what do you think? You're in Revelation 12 so much. Am I, is that going to do justice or do we need to take the time to read the whole chapter? I think I'd read the whole chapter. Okay. I thought you'd say that. <laughs> and a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Psalm 2. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. 
but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down. The ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony for they have loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured for her mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So when we're talking about crushing the head of the serpent, just wanting to see that Satan has been thrown down. He's lost his position in that, that heavenly court that um, Tom was mentioning earlier. So he's no longer in a position to accuse the brothers. And salvations come to those who have conquered through the blood of the Lamb, through the word of their testimony. And... This, so heaven's rejoicing, but earth is starting to wail because it realizes, okay, the dragon's been thrown out. He can't accuse anymore, but he's ticked, and he's with us. As Tom, I've heard Tom say before, the dragon's in the house, and we should be terrified in a sense. And um, he's waging war since he, he couldn't get to the the male offspring, he lost his grip on the male offspring. He's now waging war against the rest of the offspring of the woman. So the people of God now are in a great battle. And that's where we find ourselves even now. Tom, do you want to add anything to that in, in chapter 12? I, just something that struck me. I, I, uh, verse 12, it says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, that separate, in the beginning God created the heavens, there, there's a unity between them because the purposes of the heavens and the purpose of the earth are together. They're, it's all about God's glory and greatness and there's no wildness happening in either realm. It's almost like 
So later on in Revelation 21, I was just, hmm. and then I saw new heavens and new earth. They've been brought, to, the story's been brought together, but hmm. we almost see this separation hmm. here of there's a sea of glass in heaven, all is calm, all is right, court's hmm. been adjourned. Hmm. On earth, you go, it is madness right hmm. now. So it's like there's no one to make waves in heaven anymore, but yes. there's yeah. a storm. And so below. it yeah. kind of tells you there's a, st a story's got to take place of they cannot always hmm. be separated. Hmm. It cannot always be like it is hmm. on earth. Hmm. Earth and heaven have to hmm. be as it was originally created. Yeah. In a lot of ways, this just sets the stage for what we've been seeing in Revelation all along. Like, okay, this is the situation you got to conquer. You got to make it. So we're, the whole point is, is that um, Jesus has conquered and now his people got to make it yeah. and he's going to keep them. Yep. But it's going to come through a lot of pain and suffering and even death, right? Yeah. yeah but even in it, even in the, the picture of it, this dragon's doing all this stuff, the earth helping by swallowing. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. That picture of we're not left yeah. by ourselves. Mm. to defeat this dragon. Amen. You, you just read it and say, wow, at every mm. turn, he, there's a far greater counter mm. And we need to remember that when we're feeling like mm. we're losing. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Then Revelation 20. This is where he meets his end. This is the last time he's going to be mentioned. So I'm going to read portions here of Revelation 20. It's reminding ourselves that this is God's faithfulness in fulfilling his promise to deal with the serpent. Verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended until he, um, until he must be released for a little while. I take this as um, Satan being bound to the place, kind of like in the Gospels we were talking about earlier, the strong man is bound. And now we can plunder all of his goods. His soul, souls can be plundered now. I remember writing an email to a missionary brother um, uh, and just, just encouraging him, just praying for the peoples that he's going to reach and just saying how encouraging it is that the strong man has, has bound, that a, there, there's a stronger man who's come to bind the strong man. And uh, now you can go and plunder souls in Japan. Like what a... What an encouragement. I think that's what that Revelation 21 to 3 is meant to do, is to say he's bound, um, and to the, not that he doesn't have any influence, but he cannot ultimately stop the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is a great missionary hope and impulse and motivation for the saints who are suffering, saints who are trying to advance the cause of Christ, but are going through much pain in the process. And then we get to verse 7. Then when the thousand years were, are ended and the gospel has been fully preached, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Great deception. Gog and Magog to gather 
them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched out over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the prophet and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever and this destroys any notion of satan ruling in heaven he is going to be tormented with the rest of his offspring forever and ever and ever the end of satan And uh, so that's, that's that piece. Anybody want to comment or question on that piece? Getting rid of the serpent by putting him to shame, by crushing his head. We find Jesus came to crush his head, and because he did, he lies crushed under our feet as well. We don't always feel that yet, but the day is coming when we'll know it more fully, that the victory has been dealt. Until then, we're preaching the gospel with great confidence. My brother. Okay. Understand that I'm not there, but I come from very dispensational and Lindsay. Yeah. Understanding. Yeah. yeah. But these, this scripture is, it's like a time element involved here. Mm. And yet, of late, I've been thinking that Revelations as a whole is a more universal application to our lives. Mm. Our whole lives. Mm-hmm. So, if I look at how am I looking at this? I mean, I, I've seen a thousand years, or so yeah. there's going to come a time when this other thing is this, is this a physical reality or mm-hmm. is this part of the apocalyptic literature? What part are you asking about when you say, is it a, <laughs> all of it a physical reality? Well, is, if Revelations is the apocalyptic literature, yeah. then is yeah. part of it not apocalyptic? That's a great question. I mean, you're talking about, so we're talking about the binding of a spiritual being. So we're wondering, is he, in the most literal sense, being tied up, bound, put in this? And I'm saying, uh, nope, God is restraining him mightily. And he is, and then so I would actually really naturally read the thousand years in that same vein that we're talking about, not some literal thousand years, but we're talking about a time. It's a span of time, undefined, but what's the point is, is what's happening during that time. He's bound, the gospel is advancing. But is it that time, or is it this time? It's the time between when the victory was won and when, um, and until the end of the age, when he's released at the very end for the final showdown. That's how I take it. Anybody else want to, do you want to weigh in on that, Tom? Jason? I think you're doing a good job. You're asking a great question. Yeah. So I, I think um, a big question people have to answer, though, is in, do the writers, is a number always a number like it is? So is, for instance, do different writers have permission to do different things with different numbers? Can it be a tool like the dragon is a tool, a symbol of something? Um, yeah. So when he says he bound with a great large chain, you think, man, we should make one of those on earth because we could deal with the devil. And you say, we can't see him. He's a spirit being. Mm. We could never make a chain. So the chain is a symbol of something. 
Yeah. Do numbers in this type of literature, are they like words would be in other things? Right. If they are, then you go, hmm, the thousand years is probably symbolic of something. How is a thousand a symbol in this type of literature? If they're not, then you'd say it's a specific thousand year time period. Yeah. My personal argument would be he's done it all throughout the book, used numbers in a way that they're making you think of other things. He's he's done it frequently. Yeah. So I would just my suggestion would be he didn't get up to chapter twenty and change his way of doing it. So an example we, we talked yesterday is he measures the city. Yeah. And it's what what is the how do they say it in ESP? They say and the city is what's the size of it? Uh, Twelve thousand stadia. So are you going to be frustrated if you get to heaven with not here on earth? And you find out it's actually 12,500 stadia. Or is the number symbolic of... Oh, forget it. <laughs> or is the number symbolic of, oh, you just made a very large cube. That was the point. This was a symbol of this is massive. And I would, I would just suggest Revelation does this everywhere. Yeah, and I'm not talking about the number. The number's not the issue for me. The at all. But it's, then I saw an angel come down to him, holding the hand of the key, bottomless spit, great chain. He seizes the dragon. Did this happen at resurrection? And so that we are actually living through this, or is this something to look forward to in the future? If, if I can just speak to that. Um, there are many approaches to Revelation trying to figure out how are we supposed to read it. But whether you're Hal Lindsey or um, someone who, who holds a dispensational um, premillennial approach to the book or someone um, that holds a amillennial okay Okay. Um, the can so has been, the can of worms has been opened. Before millennium is that thousand years, yeah. and the idea that Jesus would return before the thousand years happens, that Revelation twenty is talking about, that Jesus will return and then reign for a thousand years on the earth, but that's still future from now. The church age happens, then the great tribulation, then the return of Christ, or in Hal Lindsey's model. The return of Christ, then the Great Tribulation, then the return of Christ again, and then this thousand years. So it's future from now. Regardless of which model, or amillennialism is a realized millennialism, that, that this thousand years is actually happening right now. So it actually is, a, you could say, a literal thousand years, but it's in the sense of... It's a, it's a period. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's, how, it's, a, it's how John meant it. It's an extended time yeah. of reign. Um, Everyone who reads this book, including Hal, Hal Lindsey's grouping, um, which would be the same grouping that would be part of like the Left Behind series, all of them see at least one, what we call um, repetition, where the story has been told and then we at least start over again in Revelation 12. Revelation 11, everyone affirms, <coughs> we've arrived at the new heavens and the new earth, the same place the end of the book ends. 
And so the question becomes, how many times do we start over the story back at the times of Jesus? And, and my point right here, uh, this, your question is actually a different, different seminar, the, which would be worthy to have. Um, how should we read the book of Revelation? And why do we read it a certain way against other, other models? That would be a legitimate approach. But my point is that with respect to the, the judgment that's brought on the serpent, regardless of when verse 2 happens, when it says, and he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, and bound him for a thousand years, whether that is already happening or whether that is something in the future, when we get to the end, it says, and when the thousand years are ended, that's very clearly still future for us. No one, no one questions that. And the reality is that this serpent, Satan, the devil, will in the future fully be put down. And so that's still future for now. That would also indicate that there's an incredible quote hell. Correct. That in the future, so we can in every model, in every model, there is still a coming tribulation in every model. Okay. Just at different degrees, perhaps. With a different understanding, but in every model, right at the end, he's released. Right? That, that's how I, how I would understand it. Yeah. That in every, in, every, in every model of understanding, this is still the end. And that at the very end, there's a release, there's chaos, there's a great battle that ultimately is finished with the coming of Christ. Hmm. I've got all kinds of questions to go there, but we probably should take focus. Yeah, it's good. So just putting it back together where we've been so far. So Jesus, the second Adam comes, he... He um, succeeds where the first Adam fails in terms of temptation. He resists temptation so that he can be the one to put the serpent down. He did that by putting him to shame and crushing his head. And now I want to kind of down the home stretch here, talk about how the second Adam sufficiently clothes us. And I think that's helpful to talk about because we kind of see that, you know, Chapter 2, um, Genesis chapter 2, verse 20, 20, uh, four, 25, the man and the wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. After they were deceived, they sewed fig leaves and made themselves loincloths. And so there's their own attempt there to clothe, them, clothe themselves. And then after Adam puts his faith in that promise of the seed, he is clothed with skins. That is a perfect time for my iPad to die. Um, he's clothed with skins. And, uh, and so there's just this sense of like there's, there's, there's a trajectory here. What, how else will he be clothed? How will, how, will, um, how will God clothe his children more permanently? And uh, so we're going to trace that throughout Scripture. So I want to start. Um, by, give me two seconds to pull up an email on my phone. Okay. So let's look at um, Isaiah. 
61, verse 10. So go, ahead, go to Isaiah with me. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Hmm. And then I just jump down to 62 verse 5. Love this text. I like preaching this at weddings. Uh, Christian weddings. Um, verse 5. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons, so, so shall your sons marry you. As, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. When we've been decked out with robes of righteousness, God is able to rejoice over his bride. There's just this picture of, this picture of clothing. There's, there's always been a plan for there to be more clothing. And so he's, they're rejoicing in this day. In the year of the Lord's favor, um, there's going to be clothing that's going to be provided. It's going to clothe me with garments, um, a robe of righteousness. And that's kind of the phrase I think that we're meant to cling to. But let's, let's go to one other text. Uh, Steve, will you do this one? I know you've done, uh, uh, looked at this text in Zechariah chapter 3. So we're going to go ahead and turn there, guys. I'm going to have Steve uh, read it. And Steve, if you wouldn't mind putting you on the spot here, but I know you've thought a lot about this passage, but just the significance of clothing in this passage. So will you read the relevant uh, portion and then maybe comment on it for a sec? Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And, him. and to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them, be, uh, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. The angel of the Lord was standing by. So what we see is we see Joshua the high priest standing before the Lord. Satan's accusing uh, Joshua the high priest. Um, um, he's standing there, clothed in filthy garments. So Satan has a legitimate dirt against this against Joshua. Mm -hmm. Legitimate reason. Um, so Satan's standing on some pretty good ground for why. Uh, for, 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 for why he is able to accuse uh, Joshua. Um, but the Lord rebukes, uh, rebukes him, um, uh, says that he's chosen Jerusalem. Uh, perhaps Joshua's a symbol of Jerusalem in, in this sense here. Uh, 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 the, the, like the head representing the whole. Um, 
so the Lord is saying, you know, I have chosen Jerusalem. Jerusalem is my, that's my people. Um, and this is not a brand plucked from the fire in a sense saying, like, this is, this is a person that I, I have saved. I have pulled them out um, um, from judgment and wrath. Um, and, uh, and then there's like, the great exchange between of, uh, he's, Joshua's pulled in filthy garments, and, and instead of the filthy garments, he's given these pure vestments. And uh, verse uh, 4 says, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity. Um, and so clearly the, the dirty clothes represents sin mm-hmm. and iniquity. And, and so the sin's taken away, and instead there's pure vestments. There's a purity there. There's a sinlessness uh, there. So we see God doing, God doing the work of clothing, taking away the sin and clothing, and in doing so, clothing, closing the mouth of Satan. Amen. Amen. Thanks a lot, Steve. That's re- that's rich. And so in Isaiah, you get this picture of you're going to be clothed. <clears throat> you're going to be clothed with a robe of righteousness, and uh, so much so that God can look at you and rejoice over you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. Then you get to Zechariah, and you get this picture of this exchange of the filthy garments being taken off and pure garments being put on. And I'd like to go to, maybe some of you have anticipated this text or been thinking about it, but 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Many of you could probably quote this from memory, but let's, let's look at it together. Here we go. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So this is a picture of um, what, what type of righteousness, this righteous clothing, this robe of righteousness, what is it ultimately? It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And I know for so many of us, this is just review, but I never tired of saying it. Um, just this is the great exchange. This is um, our, our life of unrighteousness, or you could say our bad works, but we'll go with unrighteousness here just to use the words of the text. And then um, Jesus' righteousness. Jesus was made to be sin. He was made to be sin. So our sins were placed on him. He was made to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Our unrighteousness put on Christ at the cross. His righteousness, his perfection, his life of good works, what he did before the Father when he was doing the Father's will, when he was always feeding on the word of God, that life was placed on us, credited to our account positively. And so that's the righteousness that we've been robed with. It's not just that we've been stripped of our filthy garments and now we stand naked again. No, we were meant to be robed positively with righteous garments, so much so that God could look upon us, that that Christ could look upon us and rejoice over us as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, pure, beautiful. And that's where we're going to go next in Revelation chapter 19, where we're going to see clothing. We started with nakedness. And then we end with white robes on in Revelation chapter 19. And uh, <clears throat> I think that's a good argument, by the way, for why, um, for, 
for seeing that when we were, when first parents were naked and unashamed, that eventually they were going to be clothed. Just wasn't meant to be yet. That that's how we'll be clothed in the new heavens and the new earth. But starting in Revelation 19, <clears throat> let's look at verses 7 through 9. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. What's that robe? The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And then the question to ask would be, how did it get white in the first place? Let's go back to chapter 7. Chapter 7, starting at verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I've said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And listen to this priestly language with this clothing. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in the temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. And then go to chapter 22, very end, verse 14. Chapter 22, verse 14. Listen to the ties to Genesis 3. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. So let's, let's, uh, let me just review us really briefly before we go to the last point, which is going to be very brief. And that's this, that Jesus, the second Adam, had to resist temptation so that he could rid the garden of the serpent. He did that by putting him to shame, by crushing his head. And the second Adam could therefore sufficiently clothe us in our nakedness. And he did that um, through his blood. We are clothed with white righteous robes. And now just see that the second Adam had to unlock for us the garden again to make a way for us to live forever so you remember in genesis 3 the statement behold man has become like one of us knowing good and evil now lest he reach out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever right the reason this is mercy that God would kick them out of the garden so they wouldn't grab the tree of life is because he didn't want them to eat the tree of life, live forever in their fallen state. So they're, left, they're, they're sent out of the garden with hope that the singular offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. He would deal with the serpent. And, and uh, so we're wondering, how is he going to get us back in this garden though? Like when the time's right, we're going to be able to make, make our way back to the garden. But how, do, how is it going to be open to us? And uh, one text I've found really beautiful is uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. 
So I think it answers it in one of the clearest ways that we can read even in the New Testament. So let's, let's go there. 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'll wait for you to turn there. Paul's exhorting Timothy, young Timothy, about um, staying faithful and preaching the gospel, especially in the midst of suffering. So let's start at verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord Jesus, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and now has manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So how is the garden opened again from that text? How is life and immortality brought to us? Or to anybody? Through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's through faith in that gospel that we find our way back into the garden. And this is really it. I mean, we're, we're really talking about, when we talk about tracing out the trajectory of these themes in, in Genesis 3, we're really preaching the gospel. We're saying we've all been deceived. We're all under the power of the serpent. And therefore, we are under a sentence of death and condemnation. And our only hope is to trust in the singular offspring of the woman who has put the serpent to shame, who has crushed his head and is willing to clothe us with his righteousness. And so Adam says, I, I trust that. I trust that, that, that God's going to do that through the singular offspring of the woman. And when he does, and when we do, the garden is unlocked again. And we are not just in, a, in the old garden, but we are in a new and better garden. And that's why Revelation 21, 22 describes the new heavens and the new earth. We're back in a garden again, but it's a better garden. Everything's bigger, everything's better, and it's permanent. And all of it because we've trusted in the snake crusher. So any comments or questions just to close, guys? I'd love to close in prayer, but just any comments or questions, clarifications, anything at all before we close? Yeah, I got a brother. So the Romans passage, I mean, the, uh, the Romans 16, that's mm. the only time Satan's mentioned in the whole book of Romans. Mm. Um, uh, why, why, why do you think that that is? Hmm. That's, that's a really good question. I mean, just on the fly here, I'm just thinking about how the way Paul frames it is sin is sin's the issue, right? And so our responsibility in sin, so like the woman pointing at the serpent, saying, he deceived me. It's like, okay, Paul's like, okay, that aside, <laughs> you sinned, you're under condemnation, and the good news is that through faith in Jesus, uh, you can be made right with God. So by faith, um, we have been justified through faith in Jesus Christ, and, um, and therefore, he holds that maybe as a conclusion point 
um, after we've been able to see him unpack the victory that comes through faith in Jesus. And if I had more time, I'd go into like Romans 5 because I just think it's such a powerful picture with um, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And through the grace that's been shown through Adam is the game changer. And, and it's faith in him that relieves us of any condemnation. And it's faith in him that um, makes his victory our victory. And I think that's why he can so fittingly end. Like, I think by the end of Romans, if we're tracking, it's just like, yeah, of course. Of course Satan's under our feet, crushed. So I hope that helps, brother. It's a good question. I didn't realize that was the only time in all of Romans that Satan was mentioned. Anybody else? Comments or questions? Well, let's, let's close in prayer. And I'd like several of you guys just to lead out with just anything the Lord's stirring in your heart. Let's just pray in light of what we've received. Father, I thank you that we have not been just talking about theories. We're talking about it's real and it's a story we're a part of and it's a story of mercy and grace. And even that last text that the God of all mercy and grace will soon crush Satan under our feet. Lord, we look forward to that day when that fully happens. Yes. And we ask for your grace to be shown in our lives and mm. help us receive it. Mm. Lord, I pray that each one here leaving from here we would walk in your strength. Mm -hmm. We would not, not give up. We'd be diligent. Uh, we would reflect the image of the second Adam, the last Adam. And we would, uh, we would play our part in this battle being engaged. Thank you for your help. Mm -hmm. Thank you for the story. Thank you for white robes. Yes, Lord.
to take this group home with us, drive their lives, and the churches that we serve. So you just have uh, boldness to proclaim your gospel, mm. to apply the gospel, to teach the gospel, and uh, by doing so to uh, mm. overcome the works of the devil and, uh, and to uh, crush him under, uh, under our feet. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I pray that as we um, continue in our ministries reflecting on Genesis 1 through 3, that we would let uh, the reality that we have a big God who created absolutely everything, let that simple but profound fact shape our lives, Lord, more and more. Help us not to overlook it. Lord, help us not to overlook the work that you've called us to do in filling this earth with your glory, starting in our spheres of influence. Lord, I pray that you would help us to treasure this gospel we see as early as Genesis 3 in seed form. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We praise you um, as the snake crusher. We praise you as the one who resisted where we caved in. We praise you for crushing the head of the serpent and putting him to shame. We praise you that you've clothed us with your righteousness. We praise you that you've unlocked the door to a new and better garden so that we can live with you for eternity, that we can eat from the tree of life again and live forever now in a glorified state. Lord, we long for the day when all these things become clear, clear to us. And so in the meantime, God, I pray that we would cling to your word like your son showed us how to. I pray that we would cling to it like a lamp shining in a dark place. In Jesus' name, amen.